Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Hi, and thanks for joining us today. Just a reminder to check out our new book, Blazing New Homeschool Trails, Educating and Launching Teens with Developmental Disabilities by Natalie Vecchione and Cindy LaJoy. Available on Amazon. Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Jeffrey Wozniak. Dr. Wozniak is a professor, the Division Director of Behavioral Sciences, and a pediatric neuropsychologist at the University of Minnesota. His research is focused on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, and he directs the university's FASD research program, which conducts neuroimaging, neurocognitive, and intervention studies in FASD. He is a past president of the Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders Study Group, FASDSG. His current research is part of the Collaborative Initiative on Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders, CIFASD. His recent efforts have included a randomized control trial of choline supplementation in children with FASD, the goal of which is to develop a treatment for neurodevelopmental aspects of the disorder. Dr. Wozniak is involved in advocacy and his team works closely with the National Organization on Fetal Alcohol Syndrome, or NOFAS, and the Minnesota chapter, which is Proof Alliance, to inform the public about the dangers of prenatal alcohol exposure and to brain professionals in diagnosing and assisting affected individuals. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's show. I am honored to have Dr. Jeffrey Wozniak here on our show. Uh, Dr. Wozniak is just, he has done such amazing research and work and clinical work, and um, I am just very thankful that he has agreed to be on FASD Hope share his journey, and most importantly, share his work that he's doing, the research that he's involved in, and things that we have to be hopeful for, because there is a lot of hope in in the new clinical research and and how the FASD research field is growing and developing. So with that lengthy introduction, Dr. Jeffrey Wozniak, thank you and welcome to FASD Hope. Oh, well, thank you, Natalie. It's great to be here with you, you and your audience, and uh, it's a privilege to, to speak to folks interested in FASD. I've been in this field a long time now, and I'm always happy to, to just have general conversations and to share the latest on the research. Ah, this is fantastic. So let's start from the beginning. That's a good place to start. Let's talk about your professional journey and what led you into working in the FASD field and um, just the history of your work and, and how it's grown in the past years. Well, I started as a um, typical trainee in clinical psychology and uh, eventually specialized in neuropsychology, which is the study of brain behavior relationships and clinicians who are neuropsychologists work with patients who have um, 
a range of neurodevelopmental conditions and or uh, other things that affect the brain. And what we try to do clinically is to number one, uh, evaluate people and try to help them understand strengths and weaknesses, cognitive strengths and weaknesses, what they're good at, what are what areas of cognition are a little bit harder for them. And then we try to come up with uh, creative accommodations that are very tailored to individuals. So when working with kids, uh, we also have to factor in development because we're sort of working against a moving target uh, with child development in the background. And so we tailor our interventions even more to uh, address um, folks of different ages. Um, and my, so that's how my journey started out is in clinical neuropsychology. Uh, I arrived at the University of Minnesota back in 1996 and uh, in, initially had the opportunity to work with a clinician, uh, Dr. Penyan Chang, who was for many years uh, seeing patients uh, in the uh, university clinics who had uh, questions about prenatal alcohol exposure and questions about a diagnosis of FASD. And he was doing that all the way back in the late 70s and early 80s. So I wasn't expecting to go down this path when I arrived. I was expecting to do traditional clinical neuropsychology, but I became really interested in um, folks who had been prenatally exposed because of the wide range of uh, issues that they were facing and um, was fascinated by the fact that uh, these, these patients were coming to us from around the state of Minnesota and surrounding states to get this uh, kind of specialty evaluation and care. That is amazing. And as a parent, I'm so thankful that you took that route. We know that researchers and especially neuropsychologists in the field of FASD is so crucial in just understanding the science behind FASD and, and how we as parents and caregivers can better accommodate, like you said, better accommodate and better meet the needs of our loved ones that have enough FASD. So let's talk about where you're focusing now, specifically your work and, and your clinical work and even your advocacy work. Sure. Yeah, so coming from the path that I just described, uh, which was a clinical path, uh, after a few years of working with a, a wide range of kids and adolescents uh, who have all kinds of neurodevelopmental issues, uh, I eventually had the opportunity to start doing research uh, with patients who had FASDs. And some of that uh, came about because we have fantastic resources for neuroimaging, doing uh, brain imaging studies here at the University of Minnesota. And uh, a lot of that comes with uh, the center that we have here, an MR center, and, and a lot of it comes from the expertise that uh, of the folks who, who run that center and make those studies possible. So we started to um, initially look at the brain in kids and adolescents who had been prenatally exposed. There was a little bit of a literature on, on what happens to the brain, uh, mostly in animal studies and a little bit in humans at that point. And so we started using some specialized techniques to really delve into the details of what's going on in brain development. And we combined those uh, MRI studies with the traditional neuropsychology to really have an understanding of not only the structure of the brain and what what goes awry in development when you have an insult like prenatal alcohol exposure, but also how does that correspond to the cognitive profile of the person? And, uh, and then eventually, what are their needs based on, uh, on those two factors? What do we know about the, the brain? What do we know about the cognitive functioning? And then how do we help the person accommodate and or um, develop from there? 
So we did those studies initially for many years, um, really delving into specialty areas like what happens in the white matter of the brain. The white matter is the, is the connective um, wiring of the brain. It helps transmit information long distances in the brain. And uh, it's white because it is, it's wrapped in a fatty substance called myelin. And we know that there are some atypicalities in the way that the brain develops when it has an early insult. And so we were studying uh, what are those insults in the white matter and how do those play out in terms of cognitive performance. Uh, from that work, uh, after doing that for a few years, uh, I began to get a little bit curious about interventions because there were so few interventions. Even today, there are very few interventions for folks who have an FASD. There have been a few adaptations of other types of interventions to be particularly used in FASD, and there are a few that have been specifically developed, mostly behavioral interventions, uh, some academic type interventions, um, but not really any biologically based interventions around FASD. And in fact, uh, for neurodevelopmental disorders in general, uh, things like autism, things like intellectual impairments, genetic disorders, things that affect the brain early on, uh, the zeitgeist or the, the sort of way of thinking about these conditions, uh, the, the scientific culture around this was, was really hindered by the fact that people didn't think that there was much we could do. So neurodevelopment was thought of as something where an insult would lead to a permanent static uh, impairment. And so I, I think it was a, a question of timing because when I started to think about this, about what we could do for interventions, there were others who were starting to ask questions about, is that really the case? Uh, is there not still brain development unfolding? Are there, you know, are there not things that we could do and capitalize on the development? Uh, so then we started down the path of doing interventions. And uh, I guess as we go forward in this conversation, I can describe what those interventions are like and uh, give you some details about what we're learning from those. Absolutely, absolutely. And I've been able to participate in some of your webinars about some of those in interventions. And they just fascinate me, you know, as a parent, because our son is older chronologically, but thinking about parents who are of younger children and even infants and newborns that have an FASD or another brain-based trauma, you know, prenatal trauma, such as substance abuse, polysubstance abuse, thinking about that, like gives me hope for those families that the work that you're doing and what you're learning and what the community is learning about these new interventions or about these interventions that you're getting reinforcement. And yes, this is, this is working. That gives me a lot of hope for those families that are listening that are just starting their journey. So I'm really excited to talk to you more about that. So let's move on and talk about these important clinical and, uh, and significant developments that have been happening, that parents and caregivers and us in the you know, FASD parent community, things that we should know about that especially happened in the past year or two that really is starting to, to take fruition. Well, uh, one of the areas that I'm working in has to do with nutritional supplementation. And uh, this, this line of research came entirely uh, out of animal studies that were being done by 
um, Jennifer Thomas at San Diego State University and others who were looking at the impact of nutrition on brain development following uh, prenatal alcohol exposure. And in the models that they were using in the laboratory, they were initially able to show that giving a nutrient like choline, which I'll describe in a little bit, um, actually, uh, if you gave that prenatally to rodents, you could essentially reverse some of the damage, or you could augment the rest of development that was still taking place, uh, such that those animals would not have the same level of cognitive impairment. And then the really fascinating part is that even if you wait and you give the choline postnatally, you know, after birth, uh, later on, you can still get some of that effect of reversing the cognitive impairments. Now that's critical because we don't often have access to um, women who are pregnant and consuming alcohol. Uh, there have been studies done. There are studies being done with prenatal choline supplementation, but the, we also need something for the, the kids who come to us when they are um, adopted or when they are born uh, or when they're two years old. And uh, we want to still try to impact their development as well. So we started down this path of trying the first uh, studies in, in choline supplementation postnatally in, in children. Um, and there had already been a, a, a little bit of effort to try prenatal supplementation and those early studies uh, mostly being done outside of the United States, um, some in South Africa, some um, in Ukraine, those efforts are starting to come to fruition as well, showing that prenatal supplementation with choline can have benefits for uh, kids who are uh, exposed prenatally. So we're doing the postnatal studies. We've now been doing that about 10 years. And the reason why we're using this particular nutrient, choline, um, is all based on those laboratory studies early on. So this is translational. This is taking work that's uh, you know thought out at a biochemical level, tried in uh, animal models, and then translated into uh, you know first efforts in in humans. So choline is this nutrient uh, that we all consume. It's in our food. Um, it is, uh, it, it's essentially like a vitamin in many ways uh, in that the body can produce some of it, but we also need to consume some in order to, in order to have enough. So we need to consume it in our diet. And choline exists in a, a large range of foods, especially in foods like eggs um, and meats and a few other things. But most people in, uh, with a typical American diet, for example, don't receive enough choline through consumption. And uh, when a woman is pregnant, actually her body is going to ramp up the production of choline and she's going to need to take in more choline in order to meet the needs of both her and the fetus. And interestingly, the fetus actually needs the choline so much that it kind of robs the, the mother of her choline. She can become somewhat choline deficient during pregnancy because the, the fetal um, need is so high uh, and, it, and it's critical for development. So that's one of the ways we know that it's critical for development because the fetus has this mechanism to sort of take the choline. Um, so it's a nutrient, it's like a vitamin, and um, that's what we've been experimenting with uh, during development to try to augment 
some of the development that's still happening through the first few years of life with something that we know is critical for brain development, uh, giving it in higher levels than you would normally consume through food to try to overcome some of the um, developmental damage that's come from prenatal alcohol exposure. And what specifically about alcohol affects the choline balance in, in a pregnant mom and, and then in an, an unborn child? Well, we don't actually know a lot about how alcohol affects choline specifically, other than um, we know that there's there, that it probably reduces um, the effectiveness of, of nutrition in general. Uh, it interferes with, with uh, nutrition. And, and frankly, um, we know that there's an interaction between alcohol, heavy alcohol use and poor nutrition. So that's a behavioral uh, type of thing that, that folks who are using uh, alcohol excessively oftentimes have uh, less adequate nutrition than those who are not. And then there's this added effect of, you know, uh, uh, like a biochemical effect of the alcohol on how the nutrition can be used. What we're doing with choline though, is trying to overcome some of that damage by capitalizing on development. So we know that brain development's continuing long after the alcohol exposure. Uh, and there are some regions of brain that are really heavily developing during the first few years of life, especially the first uh, two, three, four years of life. One of those regions that we're really interested in with choline is the hippocampus. So this is a structure in the brain that's very involved in memory and is important for laying down new information into memory. And choline has a lot to do with hippocampal development and hippocampal functioning. So one of the reasons we think it might be working in the young kids that we're giving it to, and, and probably the prenatal studies as well, is that it has this influence on hippocampus. Uh, it causes the hippocampal cells to uh, proliferate. It causes them, the hippocampus to be larger, and it causes the hippocampus to function more like it should when it is present during these developmental windows, these key developmental windows. So what we're hoping to do in our studies, what we think we're doing is, is augmenting the hippocampal development that might've been thrown off track very early on during pregnancy, we're augmenting the, the rest of the development at the tail end and uh, trying to optimize it during those last few years uh, of that window of opportunity. So what time frame is right now the choline most affected? Obviously after birth, but when does it stop being as effective on that growing brain? Sure. That's an excellent question. Um, you know, what everything we know tells us that it's going to be most effective very early on. So if you could give choline during the first month of pregnancy, the first, you know, three months of pregnancy or the, or all throughout the nine months of pregnancy, that would be optimal. That would be ideal. Uh, in many cases, we can't do that because we don't, we're not aware uh, of these pregnancies until after the fact. So in the postnatal studies, the, the period that we have looked at is ages two to five. Uh, and that's really a practical limitation. We haven't been able to yet do studies where we're supplementing, uh, you know, one-year-old infants or, or, or that that's possible, but we just haven't been able to technically do it with uh, the grants that we have and the projects, the way that we have them set up. So we started at age two and our data seems to suggest that 
two and three, two and three years of age, are still periods where we can potentially have some effect. Uh, four and five, we think there might still be some benefit, but it's less so than what we saw in the two and three-year-olds. And the, now this is, I'm, I'm going to qualify what I said by saying we've only really done pilot work in this area, small studies, and we've only really done studies where we follow uh, these participants for short periods of time. Uh, and I'll say, I say that because we have now one study, which just came out in this last year, where we did follow people for, for four years out. And, and that actually reveals more than the studies reveal at the, the time point when we're giving the choline itself. So this has to do with, the, with how development is an additive process. And the general idea here is that when we influence something early on in development, it, it, everything else adds on top of that. And so it accumulates. And so if you're looking for an effect of, of, of an intervention like choline early on, you might see a small effect, but if you wait, in this case, we waited four years, you might see more evidence that of, of all of the additions that have taken place on top of that effect that you've made early on. And this is really critical because it's hard to do studies where you're following people for years and years and years. But if, if that's, if that's what we believe that development is additive and, and that early intervention is beneficial because of that additivity, then we need to design studies where we really are following people far enough to see the effects. And that's where we, I think we are. We're in, we're in you know, the, the baby stages now of doing these studies and demonstrating the basic principles that nutrition does have an influence on the brain, even after a neurodevelopmental insult, and that we need to follow people far enough in order to see the additive effects of development. So that update that was just done recently, that actually gave more insight and information as to the effects and hopefully the long-term effects of the choline. Um, what are the plans for, will there be another follow-up after that, you know, and, and how can we, you know, learn more about this progress? Our, that is our plan to, to follow those same kids uh, even further out. So they were about eight and a half on average this, when we saw them at the four-year point. Um, we are now awaiting some funding, which will hopefully be coming through very soon from the National Institutes on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism uh, to study a new group, but also to, at the same time, to be following those same initial cohorts even further out to the point where they're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years of, of age. The, at the same time, the prenatal supplementation studies are now at the point where those uh, babies who were supplemented as, as fetuses are now uh, several years old. And so those studies are ongoing uh, and are going to be very interesting uh, because as those kids become three, four, five years old, you can really start to measure some interesting uh, cognitive effects uh, that it's, it's much harder to measure in babies. And then we'll really know what the influence of prenatal supplementation looks like uh, once you, again, have waited a few years to see what the additive effects of development look like. So those are going to be really fascinating studies too. 
Yeah, that is so exciting to me because when I think about our own parenting journey, it was really around the age of two when we started seeing those developmental, those really pronounced developmental symptoms start coming about. And so thinking about parents of kids that young or even younger and how choline could, can benefit them at this crucial age, you know, ages two and three, which is when we just start seeing things coming about. That is so exciting to me. And again, something for, for parents and caregivers and, and the community to have a lot of hope in. So besides this, this update in this study, what are some other um, goals or, or objectives you have for the rest of 2021 in, in your field of research in, in FISD? The other things that we're working on right now, um, I'm part of a consortium called CFAST, that's C-I-F-A-S-D, which is a collection of um, really diverse researchers and scientists and clinicians who come together around the issue of FASD and study everything from craniofacial development to cognition to uh, brain MRIs to genetics and genetic influences on uh, the developmental process to biomarkers looking for evidence of prenatal alcohol exposure. And that consortium is just gearing up to uh, prepare another set of uh, grants to go in next year. So what we're hoping to include in that CFAS project um, has to do with a different intervention for older kids. So on the side, we've been working, uh, doing some pilot studies of brain stimulation and cognitive training in older kids. One of the things that happened when I was studying choline uh, for over the past 10 years was, was parents and clinicians would oftentimes ask me, you know, what are you doing for the rest of us? What, what are you studying for older uh, individuals? So there is a whole line of research now looking at cognitive training, and that is usually computerized training that is systematic, uh, repetitive, but, but increasing in difficulty and complexity to train the brain essentially to do things like uh, concentrate, remember, problem solve more effectively. So it's a little bit like exercise for the brain and for your, for your mind. Now, the studies of cognitive training have generally showed uh, a few limitations. Um, there's a ton of progress in, there, in this area, but there are some limitations. And, and one of those limitations is it takes a lot of effort and time to do this cognitive training over and over and over again before you get an effect. And sometimes the effect of cognitive training is limited in scope. In other words, the benefits are kind of limited to the narrow range of things that you trained upon. And then we don't know about the durability of this, like how long it lasts. So a number of investigators have started doing mild brain stimulation uh, in order to try to do something that we call enhancing the plasticity, sort of waking up the brain, cueing the brain into the fact that what's happening right now is important and should be laid down in memory or should be laid down in the circuitry. And so we have this way of enhancing plasticity through very, very mild brain stimulation. Uh, these days we, ha we can have a child wear a, a simple cap with uh, wires that run to the cap 
and then we stimulate with very, very small voltage, uh, like less, less voltage than you would get out of a, uh, you know, a battery. Uh, but in a, in a systematic way, repeatedly and to the right part of the brain, that kind of stimulation can go through the scalp, through the bone, and to the very outer surface of the cortex, uh, the, the outermost part of the brain, and do this uh, plasticity enhancement that I just talked about, kind of wake up the, those neurons that are under there and signal them to uh, essentially be attuned to what's happening right then and there. And so if we can do that at the same time that we're doing a cognitive task, uh, hopefully what we can do is strengthen the cognitive training, make it more durable, and maybe even potentially make it more generalizable. That's the hope. So we've done some pilot studies now, uh, and we have some expertise in this within our department, within our university. So we're hoping to be able to do more of that because the goal there is, uh, you know, working with middle school kids and, and, and uh, high school age, you know, adolescents and maybe even adults eventually. Uh, this is a key, this points out a key thing that I always like to talk about when I talk about interventions is that interventions are not universal. We don't have any cure-alls. And if you run across things that are promoted as though, you know, they can, can address any age, any condition from ADHD to learning disabilities to FASD, those are times to be skeptical. Uh, the types of studies that we're doing are um, developmentally targeted and they're targeted towards specific outcomes. And so the two examples that I've given, the nutritional interventions, which are done very early and for very specific things like memory, uh, are different than these interventions I'm talking about now, which are for the developed brain and probably more for the middle school slash adolescent type age range and potentially for a different set of cognitive functions, uh, things like planning, organizing, attention span, that sort of thing. Wow. I am so blown away by hearing with older children, the neuroplasticity stimulation. This is just, again, this is like, <laughs> this is like hope fireworks for me. If I, if I can just say as, as parents of, of older children, young adults that have an FASD, we are so thankful for everything that's been done so far, but thinking about what can happen for those families of younger children or even, you know, school-age children that still these interventions, this research can be so beneficial. Um, I, I just have nothing to say, but wow, I apologize. I wish I had something more intelligent to say as a reply. What can you share with our listeners that are just some really remarkable insights that you've learned in, in over, you know, the past few years about this research that's just kind of booming. What can you share with our listeners that can um, provide them with insight as to how to think about their child's brain, especially their, their child whose brain has been affected by prenatal alcohol exposure or polysubstance abuse. We, we often say on the show, we talk about brain first and, you know, you think about the brain and you just think about the science behind it. As a neuropsychologist, what advice can you share uh, with our listeners about things that you've learned and, and that should be kind of front and center for parents and caregivers? 
It's a great question. Um, you know, we we are still at the baby step stages of these these more complex interventions that I've been talking about. Uh, you know, we're making lots of progress, but um, there's a ton of work to be done. At the individual level, you know, what can parents take away from this and, and from our general understanding? Uh, you know, there are some simple things. So, for example, you talked about, you know, what, a parent of a two-year-old and, and kind of how they, how they think about development and what they see in a child who has FASD at that, at that age, just starting, you know, the emerging of the symptoms. Um, you know, I think it's critical for parents to realize that development is a very powerful process that is subject to influence. So you think about it as this kind of um, very powerful process that unfolds in the background and has all of this biology behind it. And if you can nudge it in one direction or another, you can take advantage of the fact that it's kind of like a moving train and, and you're using all of the energy that's, that's already being put into development to, and you're going to capitalize on that. So you don't have to be an expert in development to, to be able to do that. Um, you know, a few, a few sort of rules of thumb that I like to point out to parents. Uh, one is that, you know, look for the zone of um, kind of the, the, the zone of development, the, the sort of edge of development, rather than thinking about, you know, I want my child to do X, Y, or Z, and I'm going to really hammer away at that skill because it's critical that they know how to do that. Look for where is the edge? What is the child showing right now? And then try to push that edge rather than setting a goal that may be too distant from, from that edge. And so, you know, if we think about a skill um, like, uh, you know, let's say in a young, young child, a dressing skill, you know, what can they, you know, put a piece of clothing on or something, uh, you know, what they're doing with their behavior gives you a very strong signal about what they might be able to do next. So setting the goal too far out based on what, what you would hope as a parent that the child may be doing might lead to frustration. Whereas looking at what the child is actually doing and then taking your cues from that and building upon that step by step by step, always looking for that zone uh, just outside what the child is, can do, that's a much better approach. And that's so important in developmental disorders, neurodevelopmental disorders, because the development is not regular. In a typical child, uh, typically developing child, development is very regular. It's very linear uh, in many ways. It's very predictable. Uh, it's kind of uniform uh, across people. But in, in kids who have any kind of neurodevelopmental issue, you oftentimes see a more scattered development and you see jumps in development. You see halts and jumps in development. So, you know, Going by age, for example, and saying, well, you know, a, a five-year-old should be able to do A, B, or C. All the other five-year-olds do A, B, and C, and uh, I want my child to do that. That's less effective than saying, 
you know, where is my child with this particular skill that I'm talking about? Not all skills, but this particular skill, what's the edge that they're showing? And let's push that edge a little bit. And in another area, they might be performing, you know, at, at a level above the, the age expectation. And there you can push that, that edge further than you would for their age. But you have to look for those developmental edges. So that's kind of one rule of thumb that I like to talk about with parents. Uh, another a thing related to nutrition that I like to talk to parents about is, you know, we do these supplementation studies, uh, but they should think about the child's eating behavior as a, as a developmental trajectory as well, that it's not just, um, you know, giving foods to children so to optimize their development. It's there, there's an important piece of development that's involved in training them to uh, eat a wider range of foods and textures and be exposed to different smells of foods. And, and it takes just like anything else, like riding a bike or learning to read or write, it takes practice. And so we have to expose kids over the course of their development to, to a wide range of foods in order to enhance their development. It's much, much better to, for the brain that a child be consuming a wide range of foods than to supplement them. Uh, you know, we do the studies with supplements because we can control that and we can study that, but it's much better to be able to train a child to be not so sensitive to textures and, and not so sensitive to smells and to be curious about a range of foods in order to enhance their nutrition overall, which in turn enhances their development. So those are a couple examples of how I like to think about development is a really powerful process that you can capitalize on in helping kids who have neurodevelopmental disorders. I just took furious notes as you were saying all that, because that is so helpful. And I especially love about going to the zone of development and taking things just past the edge a little bit with, with that growth, you know, because that really does capitalize on the focusing on their strengths too, and looking at, okay, this is what they can do. Let's just push it a little bit further. You know, they're still in that comfort zone, but then there's still growth. If, if you push it just a little bit past that, I love that. Dr. Wozniak, I wish I had known that about 15 years ago, to be honest with you. I think our parenting journey would have been a, a little easier, <laughs> but I'm so happy that you're able to share this with our listeners because I'm just, again, I, I'm, I apologize for, for not being more eloquent, but I'm just really blown away by this wonderful information and insight that you're providing us. So before we end our, uh, on our hope takeaway, how can people and listeners learn more about what you're doing and how you are supporting the FASD community, just following you. How can folks just keep up to date as to what's happening? Sure. I'll be happy to give you a, a couple of ways to kind of track these things. Um, first, I do want to say a follow-up on something that you just said. And I do want to say that uh, most of what I've learned about child development, I've learned from parents and from uh, the parents of, of the clients that I work with and the patients that I work with. So parents are intuitive. Parents are, you know, vigorous uh, pursuers of information. They are fantastic learners and they're fantastic teachers. And every clinician should look to parents for that education. And uh, I can't emphasize that enough that, that I, I, I do clinical work now 
because it informs my research and and those conversations with parents and learning about the children and about their families uh, really does drive the research mission and it it has taught me more than I could possibly learn about development from a textbook or from a, a research study. So that's a way by that's that's by way of encouraging other clinicians to really be talking to parents and other researchers to really be talking to parents and listening to parents, um, but also to to congratulate parents on everything that they have learned about their children and everything that they've taught those around them, whether it's clinicians or teachers or caregivers uh, about their children. It's a, it's a necessary education for all of us. On behalf so, of any, pardon my interruption, on behalf of any parent that's listening, thank you, Dr. Wozniak. That really, really, it, it validates. It, it's really validating when you say that because so often we parents, we come to these brick walls and we just don't know where to go. So hearing from you that you have learned and you have respect for, for us parents out there, it's, it's very humbling and it's very appreciative. So thank you. It's tremendous respect. Yeah. So um, you asked for a couple of areas where we you know, folks can look for updates on, on research. Uh, one of them is uh, our website. I have to confess I'm not great about keeping our website perfectly up to date, um, but I do have a website. It's FASD at UMN, that's University of Minnesota, so UMN.edu. That's one place. Uh, another place to look for uh, updates on research, I mentioned the CFAST group that I am part of, and that's cifasd.org. So that website publishes um, news stories and updates about FASD research that's going on in CFAST. Uh, I'm also very involved with the, uh, the Proof Alliance, which is a an organization here in the state of Minnesota that does advocacy and education and clinical work and diagnostics and all sorts of things related to FASD. So proofalliance.org, I believe. I'm looking at it right now. Yes, it is. I've actually had Sarah Messalt and quite a few uh, folks from Proof on, <laughs> on FASD Hope. We're pretty tight with Proof. So yeah, Proof so, Alliance is wonderful. And if you look them up on social media, they are they're gurus at social they media. Are, so they they're are. always putting out the latest um, research in their in their newsletters and their Twitter and other yeah. forms of social media that I probably don't even know exist. <laughs> so thank you again for being on FASD Hope. And I would like to ask if you can, first of all, I think this episode has been a hope takeaway because you have shared so much information in terms of, you know, scientific discovery, clinical research progress, and of course, validating parents, which, which we, again, truly appreciate. What final words of hope can you give to anyone listening, not, not only parents and caregivers, but anyone just wanting to learn more about FASD? Um, what words of hope can you leave um, with, with our audience, um, just, just about your standpoint in, uh, in the FASD community? I think it's critical that folks remember that development is a lifelong process. So all of these things that we've been talking about with the brain and with the development of cognition and the development of uh, a, a person's uh, 
personality and emotions and behavior, all of these things take place over the course of a lifetime. And so parents and caregivers should never feel that the door is closed. They should always feel that there are more opportunities to influence the development of that individual. And folks with FASDs, teenagers, adults, should feel the same. They should feel that progress and growth and development and new learning are all possible and are, are, are really inevitable. The brain continues to grow no matter what. Cognition continues to develop no matter what. And they should all feel that there are opportunities at every turn to move forward. And those are wonderful words of hope. Dr. Jeffrey Wozniak, thank you so much for being on FASD Hope today. It's been my pleasure, Natalie, and thank you for doing the work that you're doing to bring the word out to to people and uh, form a community. It's fantastic work you do, and uh, I, for one, appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.